which is awesome. Uh, yeah. It's just confusing because it's not an absolute value. Like I know that 140 no. pounds yeah. versus someone 20 years ago is 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 like you can you can measure it. It's one to one, but yeah. you don't really remember much of it, right? I feel like I remember like three or five things, and I always think about like how I'm going to tell this story to someone that I know. And I think about something very specific and, and hopefully like this is useful for some of you guys. Peter, thanks very much for joining us again on the show. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think the idea of skill acquisition, learning new things, that's an evergreen topic that I think never gets old because as people get older, they're always learning new skills. They're always struggling in some sense of gaining that, um, you know, new, 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 new skills and new acquisition stuff. So I think it's always an exciting topic to talk about. I want to start with a quote. So there's a quote by Peter Drucker. For some people that don't know, he's you know quite a famous business thought leader, and um, his he says that the only skill that will be important in the 21st century is the skill of learning new skills. Everything else will become obsolete over time. What are your thoughts on that? Do you do you agree? And if so, um, what are some of those skills that you think would be the most important for, you know, the next 50 years? Yeah, I, I do agree. It reminds me, I wish I could uh, pull up uh, quickly the author, uh, but someone writing about education. And he makes the point that uh, it used to be that we would learn to do the work, but now learning is the work <laughs> mm. because the world is changing so fast. So uh, I would say, I mean, we all have this every day. I mean, maybe you get a new software on your phone or my wife and I bought a car recently and uh, just trying to figure out how to take advantage of the things it can do. You know, it's a process yeah. uh, with lots of trial and error. Uh, hopefully not driving. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, uh, go ahead. No, it's, it's how people are collaborating is new in ways, uh, the opportunities, the uh, ways we have to uh, reach out into the world and connect with people, all that is new and uh, changes and magnifies the opportunities we have individually to be engaged and to, to contribute and to grow. Yeah, I always thought of going to university of not necessarily learning a lot of things, but learning how to learn. This is like something a lot of people do talk about because I don't actually remember much that I learned in my university classes, but I figured out like ways to hack, you know, cram the exams or study last minute or just try to get as much information into my brain. And it's certainly transferred over time. But it seems like in university, the way the learning styles are developed there is a little bit different than, you know, maybe how people learn in modern times. So I guess, how do we identify the different learning styles that are the most suited for us? Some people are visual learners, some people, you know, listen, or they talk to themselves, and that's how they learn better. 
what are some of the ways that, um, you know, that we can actually identify what the best learning styles are for us? Well, I, that's a great question. Uh, I'd like just to go back here uh, to the book called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. This is a book that I have written with two co-authors who are scientists in the field of learning and memory. And uh, they were uh, funded by a foundation for a period of 10 years with uh, colleagues at six different universities to do scientific research into what leads to learning. Hmm. So what we're discovering, what they discovered, and what we wrote about in our book, Make It Stick, is that we, as individuals, through our life experience, we tend to think that uh, learning comes from rereading, uh, watching videos, um, trying to put stuff in the brain. Uh, but And we, we tend to think maybe I'm more of an auditory learner. I like to see videos, maybe, or I'm kinetic. I got to be moving my body. Those kinds of activities are, are preference, personal preferences. But there's not a science that shows that if you think you're an auditory learner, you learn better in an auditory way. Maybe you feel more comfortable doing it and you spend more time that way. Scientifically, uh, what we've come to understand is that learning comes from working at getting new knowledge and skills out of the brain rather than trying to get them in. So once you've, let's say you read an article, uh, let's say after this conversation, if you're listening to this conversation, when, when it's done, ask yourself, what, what are the big ideas in the article I read or in this podcast that I want to remember and describe to a friend? Retrieve that from memory because the act of retrieving that from memory and, and maybe asking yourself, how does this relate to what I already know or a point I want to make with my friend at lunch? That strengthens moving that knowledge just from your short-term memory into the other parts of the brain and enables you to bring it up again later. So retrieving hmm. knowledge and skills from memory, practice, if you will, leads to durable learning. So it's just, if I was to be listening to an audiobook, it's the idea of just an hour later or two hours later, or even right after, just thinking about what the takeaways were that I can actually remember will actually help me retain that information over the long, just the idea of thinking it's about it. It's as simple as that. It's as simple mm. as that. And you want to recall it while you still can. So if you're meeting people in a, in a room, uh, you need to try recalling the names, you know, right away in your mind. And then again, later, as you notice yeah. them around the room, if you want to be able to recall them, you know, later in the meeting or tomorrow. I'm so bad with names. Do you have a tactic for like remembering names better? Like I heard. Uh... <laughs> when I, when I used to facilitate planning meetings with corporate staff and I would get the names of the people who are going to be there and I'd try to get something from about each of them from my client to tell me something mm -hmm. about. So when I'd meet the person, I would have a, a way of associating the name with the thing they do. I could ask them about, oh, I understand you're, you know, in charge of marketing the new product or something like that, whatever that thing was, start a conversation. And I could connect the name 
to the thing they do and the person that's there in my mind just briefly and move around. Then I would have to come back to it. But because in advance I'd prepared to know the names and connect them to what that person's responsibilities are, it was easier for me then to facilitate a conversation and call on someone saying, well, you're in the, you know, the inventory side. How do you feel about this thing that's being suggested? Mm. So it's this notion of trying to embed that material in your mind, and it really gets embedded by retrieval practice. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Because people often say that if you want to remember a name, as soon as you hear it, you want to try to use their name mm-hmm. in a conversation. Obviously, it helps that the, you know, the sweetest sound that comes from someone's mouth, I think Nelson Mandela said this, <laughs> is uh, the sound of your own name. So it yeah. helps that this is a great way to facilitate and like compliment someone to use their name. What Little do they know that it's really just you using them to you know, have a retrieval practice in a conversation. Oh, that's but, very good, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Yes, so th- that yeah. totally makes sense. Um, and I guess you can apply this in anything, really. But because yes. you're oftentimes learning, uh, like in a conversation, you know someone's name, you can actually have a conversation with someone's name, with someone and use their name. But when you're learning something on your own, let's say you're watching YouTube or you just read a book, you can't really do that. Like you're not just going to talk to someone else. So what, what are the best ways to retrieve it? Do you just think about it in your head? Do you, can you remember more by writing it down? Uh, what are yeah. some of the practical tips for that? Everything that you know, you know, it, it gets physically wired in your brain, durable memory. Uh, so uh, what you want to do is connect this new knowledge to other things you already know. Just as an aside, there's a wonderful uh, show on uh, the American public uh, broadcast uh, show, Nova, a science mm-hmm. show, where you can see uh, a sea slug uh, being stimulated uh, with a probe, and in the through the microscope, you can see the neuron reaching out, an axon growing from one neuron to another, the forming of a memory. And in our brains, uh, when we know something well, that means it's connected to many different things that we already know. So when you're trying to learn something new, uh, you could simply, let's say you read an article and you learn something interesting. You want to connect it. You ask yourself, what's this like that I already know? Hmm. How would I use this information? Uh, how is it different from something else? And so you begin to make those connections in your brain. And in order to retrieve something, you have to have your memory well embedded. It has to be connected well in the, in the brain so you can get it again later. And uh, if you can associate a visual cue with it, that helps you retrieve it later, find it and retrieve Mm. it. So just sitting with it and asking yourself, what was it? Why am I interested in it? How is it like something I already know? What would I want to tell Sean when I'm uh, videoing with him uh, on the computer about that thing? That act of working through that in your mind briefly will help you. And then a couple hours later, you might just ask yourself, what were those things? Because you need to do it a few times to make it uh, hang in there. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jim Quick. He runs no. like Quick Brain and kind of talks a lot about memorization and how to become like a super learner. And he does this thing where like you'll give him either names or like vegetables or fruits and you just like name it in any order. 
And he'll be able to recite that back to you, even if it's like 26 variables or items, mm -hmm. and then he can do it backwards. And one of the things that he does apparently is, is what you just mentioned, which is like, he creates an emotion with each thing that leads to another and creates a story around it. Mm -hmm. So for example, like, let's say it's like Jack and then the other one's like, um, banana he'll like create a visual that says like, well, Jack slipped on a banana and that mm -hmm. led to him. So it, it, it creates emotions, there's laughter. Um, it seems like, I guess the cool thing about this is like, it's, ra it's not so much about talent, like natural photographic memory. It's an action that you can actually take just through like will by doing these retrieval practices. Is that, is that kind of what you guys are message is around? Anyone well, it's it? partly that, it's true. Uh, there's a, a, a field called mnemonics. That's M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C-S. Uh, and it is a way of uh, creating simple structures that you can use uh, to recall things. It's, it's a simple memory device. Uh, one way of doing it is, uh, this is, uh, we wrote about this in a book, Make It Stick. These are students preparing for uh, A-level exams uh, in Britain. And uh, they're going to have to be able to write a paragraph on uh, uh, many different things. They don't know which topics. And so for each topic, uh, their uh, teacher takes them to a cafe. And they sit in the cafe and they look at the surroundings and they think of this particular paragraph I want to be able to write. If I'm going to be in this cafe, I'm going to imagine uh, coming in the door and I'm going to walk around this room. And as I go around the room, these things are going to remind me of the points that I want to make. So it's a kind of hmm. memory device in which they can take a body of knowledge and attach it to a physical place. And when the question comes up, they say that one, I have to go to the Starbucks at such and such a corner. That's where I studied that one. And I'm walking in there and I know there's this big green plant and that reminds me of this. So these mm -hmm. mnemonic devices are helpful for getting access to things that you've learned. It's not, uh, it's not conceptual knowledge. Uh, it's not, um, what can I say? Uh, it's th those are retrieval devices and, um, they're great for going to the grocery store. Uh, my co-author, Roddy Rodiger was running these big memory championship contests in California and people could, could memorize a, a deck of cards, you know, one pass through and like, I don't know, a very short period of time. And then they could tell you all this correct sequence because they had yeah. their own device for that. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's about memory, but it's not about learning quite the same as what we might be talking about, learning uh, the new operating system on your computer or learning uh, uh, microsurgery when you're at medical school and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, and so those, oh, I'm sorry, Sean. No, no, go for it. Well, I was just gonna say, it isn't just retrieval practice. Uh, it's also spacing out your learning. Uh, mm. And coming back to it later, because if you come back to it later and, re and try to recall it, it's hard to do. And that extra effort reignites those connections and strengthens them. Uh, a lot of what 
is being taught in training programs or in schools as we'll have a block on this topic. Maybe it's uh, fractions and we'll have a block on, I don't know, uh, a different kind of mathematics. And we go on forward. What you really need to do is learn a little bit of this, learn a little bit of that, come back and then learn some more over here and come back. And this mixing up, uh, as long as you take enough time to kind of learn it each time, that practice where you mix it up makes you much better at identifying what kind of a problem you're facing and, and uh, coming up with the correct solution to deal with it. So retrieving it, spacing it out, and then mixing up your practice of the problem types. On the golf course, don't do just a whole lot of 20-foot putts. Mix up your strokes. Uh, mm. Mix up the holes. Uh, you'll get better. You won't you won't see the improvement you get from 20 putts in a row. If you do 20 putts in a row, you go home thinking, I'm great. Well, it's all a short-term memory. Whereas if you mix it up, uh, it gets it moved into that part of the brain that uh, is uh, more endurable, more durable memory. What is like the recommended waiting time? So let's say I'm learning, uh, let's say I'm taking a course or I'm learning how to play the piano. And I like get really intense with it for a couple hours. And obviously there, you're saying that there is a diminishing return. Um, yeah. What is the right amount of time to space it out to get the maximum amount of connections in our neurons to, to learn something? I don't think there's a, a, a magic to that. The, the, you want to give it enough time between a, a, attempts so that it's a little bit difficult but that you can still do it. You don't want to wait so long that you have to relearn it. So if it's uh, an, a names in a, in a meeting, like we talked about earlier, you want to retrieve them fairly quickly after you learn them, you know, yeah. a little more time go by and then call on someone by name, you know? Uh, so it really is up to, as you get it more embedded, you can wait longer. Mm. Uh, but anything you want to preserve in long-term memory, you have to every once in a while recall again. Yeah, there's no free lunch, right? Like you have to put in the effort in some way, in some way or another. Um, mm. Talk to me about skill acquisition. So we, you know, we I kind of introduced this pod with that quote. And I think all of us in, in our audience is learning something these days, whether it's just a book and they're trying to get general knowledge on a topic, they're taking a course or uh, just developing themselves, whether it's a soft skill or hard skill. You know, M Malcolm Gladwell has uh, this like touted rule, which is the 10,000 hour rule. And I've actually heard like a lot of people don't believe that. Some people think that, um, Actually, you can you can go through much less. Some people, you know, like live by that. Where do you fall based on the research you've done? The ten thousand uh, hour rule is something that uh, Gladwell got from a, a researcher named Anders Ericsson, and hmm. uh, basically, he's saying if you want to be a concert pianist, uh, you need to put in long hours of practice, and it builds up. Around these connections in the brain, there's a, a coating called a myelin. It's like on an electric cord, you have a plastic coating. And uh, there's certain things like um, playing the piano, playing the guitar, uh, that uh, many hours of practice will 
will build up that sheath and it makes those signals much faster. And uh, it creates, it uh, enables what they call automaticity where thing skills and maneuvers get chunked in another part of the brain and they happen automatically. Like when you're driving your car, you're not thinking about driving, but you're doing things automatically because you've done it so many times, you know how to mm. do it. Um, so there's not a magic about the 10,000 hours, uh, it, but it relates to a certain depth of, of uh, skill acquisition uh, by a very highly competent person. And the people whose brains have been analyzed after death, who have been virtuosos in one area, will show these effects in their brains in the areas related to the piano or the guitar, but not in the other areas of their brains. Uh, they might be super smart in the other areas, but they don't have that, you know, kind of, um, you know, super uh, uh, myelination and, and uh, I don't know what, what the words are, but that kind of ability that we're talking about. Right, right. So, natural ability. you know, yeah, it's, uh, it, you need to retrieve something in learning. You need to have embedded it in the brain and you need to have cues to get it back. So it often it will help you if you have a mental image. If you're studying medicine and you're learning anatomy, if you have mental images, it helps you retrieve the learning that you have. Um, if you, uh, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've been in situations where I'm remembering someone told me something and I can't remember who it was until I can remember that actually we, I was sitting with this person at this particular restaurant. Ah, I know who it was. I have now recalled a scene within which I make a connection. That's a cue that right. helps me retrieve uh, who it was and what the conversation was. Yeah. And similar to the names, right? So mm -hmm. Joe that, you know, has a long face or <laughs> Joe the or plumber. He's, or, has you a, know. he's always got a coffee cup with him, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always, I mean, there's some judgment involved here. Let's, let's be honest, right? As long as you're mm -hmm. not sharing that. But yeah, there, there is um, some level of the visual cues that helps with that. I forgot what I was going to say here, but I, I think what, one of the questions that I also had was um, cues is one way to remember things, but there's certainly outliers there that I would imagine defy the 10,000 hour rule where they're able to learn something much quickly. So I'm, I'm curious to dig into like the outlier situation because I think you can learn a lot more from people that you know, are the 1% just to understand and, and kind of reverse engineer what are the things that they've done? Are, are there any things that you can exact, like maybe examples or anything like that, that you can think about um, where you've learned about how people that may have shortcut the learning curve and what they've done consistently uh, to defy the 10,000 hour rule? Well, I have not researched that. Uh, I, I really couldn't speak to that. Uh, and I could give you some interesting examples of how people learn something that enabled them to respond. Uh, let's consider, for example, this woman I interviewed, a Marine I interviewed for the book Make It Stick. Hmm. Uh, asking her, she uh, was given a posting uh, in logistics. And if you're going to have a posting in logistics, you have to be prepared to jump out of airplanes. And she was going to be in charge. She didn't want to jump out of an airplane. She said, I hate heights. You know, I don't want to, I don't like falling. 
And they said, well, if you, if you don't want the posting, we'll get you another posting. She said, no, I, this is a highly coveted one. I'll do it. So they, so the question, they start out, um, you're not ha allowed to have any notes or notebook. They start out standing on the edge of a little sand pit, and then they show you how to do what they call a parachute landing fall, where you fall on different planes of your body. And you practice that just falling into the sand. And the yeah. next day, you're standing, you know, a foot or two above the sand pit and you fall into it. And then gradually, uh, they're strapping you. Uh, they have you climb a 12-foot tower and they're putting you in a sling and you're go going down a sling and coming off at the bottom. And then it's a 30-foot sling. And, and they go through this process. And that you, then you learn about, you know, how to handle wind, how to handle uh, trees, how to handle all these different things that might happen after you get out of the plane. Then on our first jump, uh, they have two doors on the plane and people in line to go out of uh, doors and they're alternating by three seconds or something. And uh, one guy goes and then she counts to three and then she goes and then then you count, I forget how long, maybe it's six seconds or four seconds, and you should feel the snug of the chute hmm. open. <laughs> so she jumped, and she counted, and the chute went snug. And then she said, I was uh, surrounded by green. I, I was, uh, I, and I realized I was falling into the other guy's parachute. <laughs> no way. Yeah, yeah. And so there they are. I don't know how many feet up they are, but they're pretty high up there. <laughs> she oh said, my well. God. And she's terrified of heights, no? Well, she, she doesn't like falling, but she, but she's done this <laughs> practice in this way where you go through this over time and they mix it up. Wow. And, and she said, I just sort of swam out of it. You know, she didn't lose her cool. She swam out of the guy's chute because she kind of figured out what had gone on. And then she went on and, and completed her job. You get that kind of ability to uh, diagnose a situation through a training regimen that isn't on a PowerPoint yeah, and it is not a video. Uh, some parts of it might be, but it's actually out there gradually uh, getting familiar with all these different aspects of jumping, the falling, the going down, the swaying on long lines uh, mm. and all of that. Uh, and she's a Marine, you said, or, or Navy SEAL? She's a Marine. In fact, she has three siblings. All four of them are Marines and her dad was a Marine. Hmm. So, yeah. So how can we take that information like what's the learning point there is, is it that the way you train and the way you practice and the way you learn is the way you'll actually perform yeah i think that the, the takeaway for me is if you think about when you're a kid and you're learning to ride a bike it's just the same kind of thing as what she went through i mean <laughs> how you get your leg over it you know uh how you get started from a standstill uh, how you learn to work the turns, how you learn to stop and get off and all those kinds of things. It's a, it's a tricky thing when you're getting started. And after a while, it's, it's just as easy as walking or anything else. I mean, you don't mm. even have to think about it. Right. Well, that kind of learning is also true <clears throat> if you're becoming a mathematician or you're learning uh, to speak Italian. Uh, it's hard in the beginning and you have this klutzy quality to it it, and you begin to question your ability. Uh, but what you don't understand is that in the background, your mind is putting these things together. Uh, mm. And a lot of learning happens after you've had this kind of challenge. You've wrestled with it. You go to bed and your brain, it's during sleep. 
it, it reiterates what, what you've been through. And it tries to figure out how this connects in the brain to what I already know. It, it fills in gaps in knowledge. It, if you have an experience of writing a, an essay uh, and going to bed and waking up the next morning and thinking, geez, you know, there's three things in this essay, I, I think is really what I'm trying to do. And I could get rid of some of the other stuff because your brain is doing that at night. Mm. And so you have to cut yourself some slack and understand that these these difficulties, which the scientists call desirable difficulties, um, are actually your brain making sense of it and getting it embodied in long-term memory so that it's there when you need it later. Yeah, this, so this that's a takeaway. Yeah, it's a great takeaway because it seems like she practiced every type of scenarios. Like I'm a big um, UFC watcher, like MMA, and they, you know, they do this. Like they they'll mm -hmm. put you in like the worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. of being taken down and they'll put you with different fighters when you're training. And it's really the way you train is the way you'll perform. And it, there's, there's a lot of like applicable ways that you just mentioned that could be uh, applied to other things that you're learning. So for example, like uh, there's also this thing called virtual trading. So if you're trying to invest in the stock market and you have no idea what you're doing, you just want a way to lower your risk and actually practice in real settings, there's like virtual, you know, you can invest virtual money, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, and you can actually apply to see how you've done in the market. Um, we actually have, this is like, sounds like a pitch, but uh, our, our company JumpSpeak, we, we have a language learning app, which allows you to speak with like a chatbot. It gives you speech recognition feedback, and there's no risk there as well, because you don't feel judged. You're not actually talking to a person, but you can practice your speaking skills. And I feel like figuring out like whatever you're trying to learn, uh, whether it's piano or whether it's uh, a new language and figuring out like what are things that you just mentioned, like mm -hmm. the, what the Marines do where there's low risk, but um, like practicing actually what you're doing seems seems like the uh, like a hack almost like that. Not a lot of people do. People just kind of passively learn most days. Yeah, you, it's easy to. Uh, some great research from these studies that I was mentioning that the scientists had did, done. So they have a situation where um, some test subjects are um, reading a passage uh, from a science magazine four times, uh, spaced over a little bit, uh, and they're going to be tested on them. And then a, an, another group, uh, reads it three times, and one time they try to retrieve it. Then they have a delay and they get tested. And another group, you know, uh, reads it once or twice and, and gets tested two or three times. Well, they're all asked before they take the test, how confident are you that you're going to do well on the test? Well, those who have read it four times, you know, they're super confident. Hmm. And those who have read it fewer times but practice retrieving it are pretty confident but not as confident. They right. take the test, you know, right away. It's like pulling an all-nighter. And uh, their prediction is correct. But when they're tested a week later, those who read it and read it and read it and read it have lost more than half. They can't, you know, their score goes way down. Now, those who have practiced retrieving it, even one time, do much better. And those who practice retrieving it two or three times, they lose very little. Now, forgetting mm. is the human condition, but you want to slow forgetting down. You want to interrupt forgetting. And you do that not by rereading, not by cramming, but by quizzing yourself and checking to see if you got it right. You know, that 
act of retrieval and verification makes it stick. Yeah, this, this makes me think about like creating, like what you just mentioned around the Marines learning by actually doing and also the importance of retrieval based on your research. Uh, I'm wondering if there's like systems that people can create, like just frameworks to remember mm -hmm. that when they're about to learn a new skill that they can create that framework around. So for example, like uh, a, a great way to, to do by doing, uh, to, to learn by doing is to actually like do it, right? So if you're learning how to do accounting, you could actually do a free bookkeeping thing for one of your friend's companies or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a fake company and actually do the work. And the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is like the um, creating stakes. So like Tim, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this, which is like when he learned how to um, speak, I think it was Chinese, he scheduled three months in advance, a live TV interview that he's going to do in Chinese. So there was like a public risk for him to be able to do that. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering like, if there's like ways to combine those three things that would accelerate and kind of beat the 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I see if I can keep track of my three thoughts. Uh, yeah. Retrieval. Okay. Uh, what is apps? <laughs> One, I want to talk about football. And there's a third one. I've already lost it, but it'll come to me. So there are apps now, retrieval practice apps. You can, If you've oh. got a, a phone, uh, you can download these apps uh, and you can take uh, what it is you want to learn and create virtual flashcards or set up a schedule in which you're going to get tested uh, to retrieve knowledge. Uh, I suppose you could do the same kind of thing. Um, well, I'll, let me just stop with the app. There's a th now increased gamification. So we know of uh, companies that have taken this principle and one of them uh, is, I know of is called one huddle and uh, mm -hmm. They have uh, all these clients. Uh, one that comes to mind immediately is uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City. It's a big venue for events. And uh, when one event is over and the next one's coming in, they got a lot of commotion to take down one and put one up and get it done properly and correctly. And so they've got they've, one huddle has helped them create a, a game if, in each of these new ones that come in, uh, in which they the staff of the Madison Square Garden or whoever is doing that work, uh, the employees compete with each other on what has to happen uh, when this guy comes in and how quickly we can do it. And they have uh, dramatically in increased the speed and accuracy with which they can make those transitions. Mm. So retrieval practice in a co friendly, competitive way is one, one possibility or not without you don't have to have the competition. You can just structure it for yourself. If you go online and look for retrieval practice apps, you'll find many different opportunities for that. Also, uh, one of the people I interviewed in writing Make It Stick uh, was Coach Vince Dooley of the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, he's recently passed away, but he was a highly successful American football coach. And uh, I asked him to tell me, how did he get his team from one Saturday game to the next? And it involved looking at videos of the opposition, uh, figuring out what their plays were going to be, and then 
going out and practicing them in individual positions, practicing them slow, then putting in groups and speeding it up and practicing it and uh, visualizing it. Uh, but then breaking that up with uh, their, they have a certain number of uh, fundamental uh, skills that they would practice like on Wednesdays, uh, you know, I don't know, I was carrying the ball or what, all the, what those diff mm. different things were, but they had a whole mixed regimen in which uh, they could spend the week uh, fast and slow uh, anticipating what they were going to do next Saturday. And if this happened, what we would do. And if that happened, what we would do and going through the motions slowly as well as quickly. And for the each position uh, a person then also was expected in his own time to go through their playbook mentally. Think about mm. and go through these plays in the playbook. Uh, the coach said, uh, we can't have them all out doing it all the time, but they can move their body a little bit as they're rehearsing it and thinking it through. All that is a form of retrieval practice. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Got it. And so it's a combination of like visualization as well slowing down mm -hmm. the pace and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting. The, the other thing that um, kind of, you talked about breaking things down that he was doing. I, I, when it comes to, you know, learning something like a language or learning a new instrument, uh, really anything, I guess, talk to me a little bit about that breakdown process and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with like Pareto's law, like the 80-20, where the 20% of the inputs would deliver 80% of the outputs. So figuring out like what are the key things that you want to, to learn, it seems like that would be like a really important process, depending on what you're learning, of course. Mm -hmm. But for example, again, with languages, just because this is what I know, I know that if you learn the 2,000 most commonly used words in mm -hmm. Spanish that you'll actually understand 85, 80 to 85% of the oral vocabulary, like oral comprehension, which is huge because all you need to do is focus on the 2000, the first 2000. And it's true with English because we don't use words like idiosyncratic or aardvark. Like there are words that are being taught that just are not going to be used and figuring out what are the most common verbs and conjugations mm -hmm. that's like has the highest impact for the shortest amount of time and effort. It, uh, that's right. It, Sean, yeah. the other thing that that does though, is that gets you in play. Once you have that, that basics, you're in play. You can go out on the street. You can uh, ask someone at the corner, you know, how would I find my way to such and such a place? Or can you recommend, mm. right? Uh, and once you're in play, I know this because I spent a year living in Italy and I didn't have Italian. By the end of the year, I, I was speaking idioms. I didn't know I knew because slowly I got to the point where I could stop at a village water pump and ask a hunter, you know, what are they shooting? You know, when I hear the guns go and write in my little notebook and see if I heard it right and go back and look it up, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, that being out in it, it, whether it's playing the piano or jumping out of airplanes or doing surgery or football, uh, mm. you begin to get these the nuanced understanding of the differences and the similarities between problems and how to approach them. Got it. Got it. Um, and I guess once we have some basic foundation of the skills that we have, um, like James Clear talks about deliberate practice. 
which is not just focusing on technique, but focusing on more purposeful habits that allows you to practice with more uh, intention. So he, he basically compares like, so while regular <clears throat> practice, let's say you're practicing a language, or you're practicing basketball, while just traditional practice might include like mindless repetitions, um, just like not really, pa just passively thinking about something. Deliberate practice requires like, like a focused attention and it's kind of conducted with like the specific goal of improving mm. your performance every single time. And that takes way more mental effort but this kind of goes back to what you're saying is same thing with retrieval practice. It's like if you put in the effort, if you put in the if you have the willingness to actually go the extra mile, it's not natural gifted talent that allows you to learn faster, to progress faster. It's just at your own will. It's, it's kind of just a matter of like you um, you going through this. Right. So you're intentional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being being a little bit more intentional with how you're um, studying this like. There's uh yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, one of the problems with intentionality is it, sometimes it's misunderstood, and that is uh, someone will uh, practice something over and over and over and over again and see mm. improvement and thinking, yeah. okay, I've been intentional about it and paying attention. I see improvement. Phew, you know. Uh, well, that doesn't stick too well either because it takes time for that stuff to 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 migrate into long-term memory. So one of the things the scientists discovered is you should mix up the practice of similar problem types. So if you're studying finding the volumes of geometric solids, originally, you know, you learn the formula to find the volume of a sphere, the formula for a wedge, the formula for a cone. In a typical arithmetic class or book, you would then get eight or 10 spheres to practice on and eight or 10 wedges and so forth. And the research is quite interesting. The students who practice that way blocked by problem type do extremely well, but they lose it when tested a week later. The other students who learn all the formulas and then the problems come randomly they only, you know, they don't do as well. They're not, instead of getting like 89% right, they're getting like 60% right, because uh, each problem, they have to figure out what is the problem, or what was the formula for that problem, and then apply it. They don't lose any in the course of a week. Uh, oh. So <clears throat> this intentionality, you, it doesn't feel like you're getting it when you mix it up. And you're, <clears throat> you feel like you're getting a lot better when it's blocked by type. So that kind of singular uh, purposefulness is not serving them very well compared to uh, the mixed kind of practice, which doesn't feel so good and doesn't seem to deliver the results as well, actually does better uh, down the road. It's kind of ironic because it seems like if you have some form of like ADHD personality where you get distracted often, like in some sense, what you're saying is those people might have a better chance of acquiring new skills faster. And remembering things more fast because they'll start with one thing, they'll get distracted with something else, they'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. That does that fit the bill of like actually, yeah, it, yeah, it does in this sense. You want to practice it enough times that you can do it, yeah, and then you want to leave it and come back to it, 
and do it again. And you want to leave it and come back to it. I have this little wire puzzle where you have to get this thing off of this very convoluted wire figure. And, you know, if I come back to it within a month, I can do it. If I don't, I have to learn it all over again. Uh, wow, <laughs> so this okay. idea of coming back to it before you, you know, while you still can do it, really strengthens your mastery of it better than just this uh, uh, kind of repetitive process of doing it over and over again until it's, it seems effortless. Then you have the illusion of, of having locked it in, uh, but it is an illusion. It's like rereading something, getting familiar with the text and thinking you know the content. That's not true. Right. Yeah. And even books, right? Like if you just read a book, you probably don't want to reread it right away. You probably want to read a few other books, maybe come back to another year, especially because you're, the way you think is different as well. Uh, I guess the trick is finding out how long you really have to wait because that's so contextual, right? Like you said, learning names, you don't want to come back in a month and then try to like say someone's name. You want to do it within the same event, but maybe with books, mm -hmm. you want to wait a couple of months. Um, so I guess it's really, those are the things you have to figure out for yourself. It seems there's no hard, fast rules for that. Right. Uh, well, the Naval SEALs and U.S. Naval SEALs invited us down to talk with their trainers for a couple of days. And and now they're mixing up uh, their core uh, competencies that the SEALs are learning. They're mixing up those movements and in, in that practice. Mm. Um, Harvard Medical School is applying this in uh, restructuring their curriculum so that while you're learning the chemistry, instead of going through all of that and then going in and doing some clinical stuff, they're mixing up the clinical. So you begin to see the relevance of this thing back here and you begin to see the crossover between these different uh, uh, science disciplines and what goes on in the lab. Those things are, uh, I think they create anxiety because they're difficult, but though difficulties are desirable. Those kinds of difficulties are desirable. Yeah, yeah, it's just enough difficulty to to get you into um, higher retention mode. Um, and better understanding of the similarities and differences between the different parts of the, of the larger process. Right, right. Uh, to finish off here, Peter, I wanted to cover some of the myths and maybe misunderstandings that we've been taught about learning or education. So for one, there is uh, a popular like uh, system that's known as the learning pyramid. I don't know if you've, you've heard of it. It's by like the national training laboratories and it's a visual is like just a pyramid where it tells you the amount of information that you'll remember within 24 hours, depending on the levels of the pyramid that you go through. It basically means like how you learn. So it's at the top, which is the least retention is like lectures. So it's like 5% of what you learn in a lecture is what you'll remember. In, after 24 hours. Next is books. Second is like visual and auditory. And then you have like active methods, which are group discussions, things that you apply immediately like immersion or things that you teach others. And the surprising thing for me was 90% of what you'll remember, like the highest one, the, 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 the most effective one was teaching others. Mm -hmm. So would you agree with like those things based on your research or would you switch yes. some of those up? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. When you are teaching somebody, you're engaging in understanding. So what you want to do is create your own understanding instead of just 
uh, parroting something somebody has told you. You want to create your own understanding of new material. You want to apply that that, that learning. Uh, and if you are teaching someone else by explaining it, instead of, you know, it would be better if they figure it out their own. But I mean, the idea of explaining it to somebody else, maybe it's just a friend over lunch, because mm. that embodies the retrieval of it, it uh, the connecting it to what you understand and already know, and present it to someone else in a logical fashion. And that process is, is making a cohesive whole for you uh, around that, that knowledge. And the act of bringing it out and delivering it to somebody else is a, a very a useful form of retrieval practice. Hmm. So teaching others, you agree, would be like the most effective way to remember anything that you learn. Because I, I agree with that. Like whenever it's I read an, a book. It's a highly effective way. I, I wouldn't say it's the most effective way, but it's a highly effective way. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And what I have to t do for myself, if I, this is a simple thing, but it, when I do read the paper in the morning online yeah. now, uh, and um, if I read an article that I want to impress somebody with, I've discovered I have to recall wh what was it about the article that impressed me and why do I think that's important? And I have to ask right. myself that a couple of times in the morning. So then when I get to lunch, I can say, ah, I want to tell you all about this, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, that yeah, helps. Cause it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it helps because otherwise I've read it, I've been impressed by it, and that's it. And I forget about it. <laughs> and know, it I, doesn't, doesn't stay with me. I mean, I, I think uh, to me, like you're, you're being very smart about it, right? You're, you're kind of leveraging like a human need or some form of, um, you know, I, I don't know if you would call it like the part of the seven deadly sins or like it, I guess it would be some form, some form of like, uh, validity or some form of social validation of teaching someone and impressing someone and you're using that which is very powerful everyone has this and you're kind of using that to help you also learn new yeah. things um, which is kind of like using names right you're like you're you know you know the person's gonna like you more because you're using their name and similar to information like I always think about I mean when you read a book like this you don't really remember much of it, right? I feel like I remember like three or five things. And I always think about like how I'm going to tell this story mm. to someone that I know. And I think about something very specific and, and hopefully like this is useful for some of you guys is like whether it's your girlfriend, boyfriend, or whether it's like your mom or, or, or a friend of yours, like visualize your, yourself, like how you're going to tell the story of what you just learned uh, at a dinner where you'll say, oh, I just learned something really fantastic. And like going through that process then you really are forced to think about what are the actual key things. You can't just blabber on. Um, so that's a personal thing that really has helped me and hopefully, hopefully it helps others. Um, last thing is um, IQ tests. So like growing up, this is like an obsession for most people, like thinking about what your IQ is or this is Bill Gates IQ and how do you compare and I feel like no one really talks about it anymore. So, uh, I mean, like what is like the origins of an IQ test and, and what was his intentions versus like, what have we learned recently and, in terms of its importance? And is it really even important? And are there latest things that I just don't know about uh, around measuring someone's intelligence? Or their aptitude. Uh, that's a hard one for me to answer. I do know that the IQ test changes 
the, the IQ figures change. The IQ is an average. Uh, 100, IQ of 100 is an average. So around different kinds of uh, skills, verbal and math or whatever the different tests are, uh, that if you come up scoring 100, that means you're average. Uh, and also you would rather be 100 and 10 or 120 or I don't know where genius is up there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, the IQ of 100 is way higher now than it was 20 years ago. Because what people knew, the average of what people knew 20 years ago was a whole lot less than what the average we know now. We have computers, we have internet, we have all the stuff going on. We uh, also, uh, in countries where they don't have good nutrition, you know, the average IQ is a lot lower. So I'm normal, I have 100 IQ, but uh, it is to that setting. So uh, in mental engagement is, uh, and certainly taking courses and things like that uh, are good for your IQ, but uh, it's easy to misunderstand uh, what an IQ score tells you. And it is uh, IQ of 100, IQ of 100 today and the uh, a standard IQ test is okay, I'm right up with other people. I'm not a genius and I'm not a sluggard. I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It seems very confusing because it's done on a bell curve, I'm assuming. So Mm -hmm. it's great that the average, which is great news. Like you're saying the average person today is smarter than- A whole lot smarter, yeah. Which is awesome. Uh, It's just confusing because it's not an absolute value. Like I know that 140 pounds versus someone 20 years ago is- is is like you can you can measure it. It's one to one, but yeah. like it means nothing then, like uh, yeah. technically. Yeah. Well, I mean, it may, it's comparative, and, and right. an interesting thing too. <clears throat> so some of the research, like uh, in I think it was in Brazil, some research of uh, young of kids and what they knew and could do. Uh, there's a population of street children who were. Uh, sustaining themselves by having little street businesses because they didn't have parents and the, they had to be able to make money and all of that. And, uh, and then there were the, the kids who had formal education. Well, the street kids uh, did terrible on the IQ tests, uh, but they could do the arithmetic better than the kids who had the paper and pencil. But we put the street kids with the paper and pencil to do arithmetic. They didn't know how to do it that way. Mm. I mean, that wasn't their world. That wasn't their environment. Were they not as smart as these kids? Well, you know, if your IQ test is based on paper and pencil, no, they're not this smart. But if you're, if it's survival, yeah, they're a lot smarter than those kids. So it depends a lot on how uh, your environment that you live in uh, and what kind of learning you get from that and uh, how the uh, knowledge is being tested. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I would argue that, well, I have no data on this. So and this is just my own theory, but I would imagine the short-term memory of most kids that are growing up today, even teenagers, have significantly reduced. And I think I've heard some articles around this just because we've grown up with, in the world of social media, short-term retention, notifications, smartphones. And if IQ tests are testing for that, I would... I would, I would think that we would be scoring lower in some sense. Well, uh, I would 
say as a non-scientist, I would say uh, I, I would probably expect that too. I think attention spans are, are very brief now because you can all, always look stuff up. You don't have to remember stuff. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the background, uh, we're all remembering a whole lot of stuff because we have to be able to, you know, uh, upgrade our software, update our software and all these different things that we're challenged with, with technology and the rest of the world. Um, we are living in that world and we're learning how to master it and keep up with it. That's very true. Yeah. I guess we do have a lot more things that we have to remember uh, and just be aware of because of yeah. our personal power is much greater now than it ever used to be because mm -hmm. we can reach the world and uh, we can and we have apps that can extend our abilities. Uh, we can publish our own stuff. So uh, I can see it's sometimes fragmented and maybe we don't hold these things in our minds that we uh, can delegate to our phones. I think that's just the way life is. And it doesn't mean we're not as smart. It uh, just means we have different ways of uh, accessing what we know and can do. Yeah, sure point. Um, well, hey, Peter, this is um, very <laughs> insightful. I'm glad it's we had to get a... Uh, yeah, I think it was a great conversation. A, a lot of things I don't think we even talked about in the in the first one. So I'm glad we got a refresher. And for people that are also listening to this for the second time, um, yeah, hopefully you can think about it and retrieve the three things that you're going to share stories about from this podcast with peter um, if they want to learn more they can get the book make it stick it's a international it bestseller yeah yes Good. sir we'll link that down for sure and where can people learn more about you um well uh i don't have much of a website i have petercbrown.com as my website i basically just post some of the books i've written uh authors at make it stick.net is uh, uh where we talk more about uh, the book and uh, people can stream some things and that kind of thing. Cool. So, okay. Well, it seems like the book is the main thing that's going to be most valuable yeah. for people. So we'll, we'll make yeah. sure those people check that out. All right, Peter, Great. thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Sean. And thanks, thanks so for much your for tuning persistence. In, guys. <laughs> yes, it was worth it. It was yeah, worth it. It was for me too. Good.